I can't think of a more appropriate book to continue on in celebration of the Reformers. Romans is really what inspired Martin Luther um, to pen his theses. He knew something was wrong. It's wrong to sell a license to sin. And so Martin Luther had been convicted through primarily reading the book of Romans. And he penned his 95 theses, put them on the door of Wittenberg Chapel, hoping to, to spur some discussion. And that it did. And so we're going to continue on in our series in the book of Romans this morning. Go ahead and turn to your Bibles into Romans chapter 14. The Apostle Paul has really ever since Romans chapter 12 been showing us what does it look like to live a life of worship? What does it look like to live a life of sacrifice in worship to God in response to the fact that God has made us righteous in him. And then now, what does it look like to worship God by living a righteous life in him? And then last week we saw a little bit about what does it mean to love one another. And this week we're going to see a continuation of that, but in a different way. He kind of attacks it in, a, in almost a negative way, talking about the reasons why we must pursue unity. And that's what we're going to hit today. So if you could please stand for the reading of God's word. We don't do this just for ceremony, but we do this to acknowledge that his word is the only infallible, inerrant thing you will hear this morning, and we want to give um, honor to God in a unique way and worship God for his word. This is God's holy inspired word. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God. For the, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then... Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the living and the dead. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then... Each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the gift of your Holy Spirit to be evidently at work today. I pray, Lord, that you would empower me as I speak, that you would empower all of us to hear from you, Lord, to hear from your word. God, I pray that any words that are not of you would fall to the ground. But Lord, I pray that your word would be effective today, would not return void. That it would be powerful and mighty to accomplish what you intend. God, thank you for your word that pierces to our hearts and minds, the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Lord, thank you for your word 
that lays us bare. But Lord, thank you for your word that comforts us as well. God, I pray that we might both be laid bare and comforted by your word today. Would you uphold us? Would you sustain us? Lord, would you encourage us that we are yours and no one can take us from your hand? Would you encourage us that, Lord, we stand secure in you because of you? And Lord, would you enable us to love one another by welcoming each other and accepting each other in you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, guerrilla warfare, it has nothing to do with apes. It means little war. And I... I, for a lot of years, until I was an adult, I thought somehow it had something to do with gorillas. It had nothing to do with gorillas. It, it, it is little warfare from Spanish, little war. And it is warfare that is meant to try to subvert and sabotage and overcome a stronger foe. It's typically conducted in small-scale, kind of insidious ways by indefinite forces against a much larger, undefeatable force. And it, it's a useful tactic for smaller, less powerful armies. They seek to disrupt. It seeks to cause unrest, distrust, division, disunity, to undermine the enemy, to take away the willpower to fight, and cause to be ineffective. C.S. Lewis, he wrote about guerrilla warfare, in a sense, in the church. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, and it was about this, this older demon, Uncle Screwtape, writing to his younger nephew, Tempter Wormwood, and he's writing advice to Tempter Wormwood really on, on how to subvert the church and guerrilla warfare in the church. And he says, surely you know that a man, if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for a church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. The enemy there being God. He continues on. He says, I think I warned you before that if your patient can't be kept out of church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on really doctrinal issues. About these, the more lukewarm he is, the better. It isn't the doctrines on which we chiefly depend for producing malice. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say mass and those who say holy communion when either party could possibly state the difference and he formed the whole water for five minutes. And you can substitute your own little differences there. He goes on to say, all the purely indifferent things, candles and clothes and whatnot, are on admirable ground for our activities, demonic activities. We've quite removed from men's minds what the pestilent fellow Paul used to teach about food and other unessentials. Namely, that the human without scruples should always give in to the human with scruples. You would think that they could not fail to see the application you would expect to find a low church man genuflecting and crossing himself, lest the weak in conscience of his high brother should be moved to irreverence, and the high one refraining from these exercises, lest he should betray his low brother into idolatry. And so it would have been, but for our ceaseless labor, or guerrilla warfare, really. Without that, the variety of uses within the Church of England, he gives an example, might have become a positive hotbed of charity and humility. There is a war that is waging against us, that is not of flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. And the stakes are very high because the effectiveness of the church and the effectiveness of gospel witness are tied up together. 
The unity of the church and gospel witness are directly tied together. Jesus actually told us that when he prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17. John 17, 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of the church is directly tied, whether for good or for bad, at times, to our effectiveness in gospel witness. And so the Apostle Paul is very concerned for the unity of the church because he's concerned for the cause of the gospel. He's been talking about what it looks like to love one another, and now he kind of gets down to the nitty-gritty of, of working that out in relationships, and he's going to continue that on. He's been talking about all the differences we have, and he's going to focus on a few of those differences in this passage, and we're going to see what does that look like in different areas of conscience. This is really part one of a part two series. And then he's going to continue on in chapter 15, talking about what does it look like to live with each other when we have differences in conscience, differences in conviction. You know, the devil seeks disunity in the body of Christ through whatever means possible. Sometimes that disunity is caused through the grenade of gossip. Other times, dissension is caused by this landmine of dissatisfaction. Not with real substance, but with style or preference. If the enemy can get members of church fearfully focused inwardly on shortcomings and weaknesses, the members will forget that they hold strong offensive weapons that can tear down strongholds. They'll forget that Strongholds to be torn down are not in the church. They'll begin to turn on each other. I pray that's not the case for our church. I pray that it's not the case for the church, that the church wakes up, as we saw last week, and becomes aware of these subtle temptations to divide and to have disunity over differences and preference, differences in conviction specifically today, and differences of area of conscience, non-essentials really. You know, the enemy seeks to plant IEDs, you know, improvised explosive devices all over the place. And through different convictions that are held strongly about non-essentials. Anybody here have a strong conviction about a non-essential? I hope you do. I hope actually every one of us does, right? The scripture here encourages us to. He says, let everyone make events in his own mind. It's not that strong convictions are wrong. It's that how we hold those strong convictions, we have to hold those strong convictions in a humble way. Church in Rome, it was, it was a very diverse place. It was full of people from all kinds of backgrounds, from socioeconomic differences. It was full of Jew and Gentile alike. And you couldn't find two parties of people who were more different. Um, even if they didn't look different in skin color, they were very different in practice. They were very different in habits, very different in upbringing. The Jews were taught that to eat any meat that was sacrificed to idols was anathema, and would lead to their defilement. And the Gentiles really didn't care what kind of meat they ate. And all their meat actually in Rome typically was first offered in a Roman temple as worship to a Roman god. And next week we're going to hit the second half when it talks about drink and wine. And how wine was actually offered as a libation or as an offering to false gods. The law was closely tied to being acceptable to God. And so for the Jews under the old covenant, their obedience to the law was tied to their acceptance by God. Now that they had become Christians, they learned the truth is that we are acceptable to God by grace alone, through faith alone, 
Not of works, as any of us should boast, as Paul has been telling us all throughout Romans. We are righteous by faith, not by works. And so when he's correcting this group, it's important to note this, this group of people who he will call weak in a moment, they are not those who believe that any works of ours add any merit to our salvation or make us believers or that we have to do certain things or dress a certain way or eat a certain way or act a certain way in order to be acceptable to God. What they believe, though, and why their conscience is considered weak is that they're not free by their faith in Jesus Christ now that they're not free to eat all things. They're not free in their Christian liberties, and so they are weak. It wasn't necessary for our salvation, but they thought, you know what, if that was a good idea in the Old Testament, then maybe we need to still keep those restrictions today to really be pleasing to God, even though we know that salvation is by grace alone. And so Paul, he, he, he's not condoning that, but he's also the same not being condescending to that because he does call them weak, but he says how you treat each other really is what matters most. And then he goes on to say to the church that the threat to unity really is the more important thing in your differences. And that's a threat for us today. You know, think for a moment, how many of us have, were raised in churches that had different ideas about how you come to church dressed, right? You know, should I come in a suit and tie? You know, to some people, I'm probably offending them today that I'm not preaching from a suit and tie. To other people, I'm probably offending them because I'm not wearing blue jeans or a, you know, a, a t-shirt or because I don't have a certain cool look. You know, there's room for offense and all those things. Or maybe you were raised in a church where it was wrong to have music with drums and a guitar, so we just offended you this morning. Or maybe you were raised in a church that you believe that that's really the only true worship and that anybody who worships just to hymns alone must be surely sinning or dead. You know, I was wrongly taught, which was not a good thing, that, you know, oh, seminaries are where people go to die. They called them jokingly cemeteries. Well, no, that's a place where you should go to learn about the glories of God. But you can be arrogant about anything, right? You can be arrogant about convictions. You can be arrogant about your past and how you were raised. And there's a potential threat in this room today to divide over non-essentials. To divide over non-essential practices and non-essential preferences. And if you're going to sum up these 12 verses, really, you could really sum up all under the header that, that acceptance of one another's fellow servants of Jesus is mandatory for unity. And so really the main idea we see is that acceptance of one another as fellow servants, acceptance of one another... Not, not because we like each other or because we're on the same page all the time, but acceptance of another. Why? Because we're fellow servants of Jesus is mandatory for unity. The first section we're going to see is really in, in verses 1 to 3 is that we must accept one another because God accepts us. He says, you've been welcomed, so you welcome because God has welcomed us. And then in verse 4 to 9, we see that we accept each other because we all belong to God. If you know that, wait a minute, this person who I have a problem with, they're God's servant, so they aren't ultimately accountable to me, they're accountable to God, and by the way, I'm accountable to God as well, it'll shape how you relate to your fellow servant. And then the last part from verses 10 and 12, we'll see that really God is the judge, and we can entrust God to judge other people as, as well as knowing that God will judge us, and so we better be careful in the way that we judge other people. And that's kind of the three ideas we're going to see in this passage. And Paul is very clear about what we must do at the very outset. Look down at verse 1. Look in your Bibles, please. 
He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. You ever have somebody you welcome into your house and you just can't wait to correct them on an area? You ever done that? Maybe it's, maybe it's, just, maybe it's just me, but you ever, you ever think, you know what, I can't wait till we get in a small group, and it's just as soon as that person brings something up, you, you just can't wait to correct them. Well, Paul says there's something wrong with us when we do that. It reveals something about us. It reveals pride in us. It reveals a wrong view of the other person. It reveals a wrong attitude. And he says, accept somebody, welcome them or accept them. It's the same word, receive them as Christ has received you, but not to try to fix them. I don't know, that's really hard, isn't it? You ever want to fix somebody? Anybody here ever want to fix somebody? Any, any husband ever want to fix your wife? Don't put your hand up, guys. Any, any, any wife want to fix your husband? You can, put your, you can put your hands up, wives. It's okay. It's all right. You have permission. Um, you know, maybe you want to try to fix your kids. Kids, maybe you want to fix your parents. You know, maybe you want to fix somebody else who's in your small group who really just bothers you. Yeah, I hate to say that. You know what? People in your small group, they're going to bother you sometimes. Somebody in this room is going to bother you. You're going to think they're annoying because they have a preference that goes against yours. You're going to not like them and their preferences. And what do you do with that? Well, the Apostle Paul says, welcome them. God says, welcome them. But not to quarrel over opinions. Accept one another because God accepts us. You know, there's some today who assume that their preferred style, whether that be in, in the church in preaching, in music, or dress, or liturgy, that, that their style, their preference, is more mature than others. I don't know if you've ever fallen prey to that. And they have strong convictions about non-essentials. And the Apostle Paul says, those who have those strong convictions and strong preferences actually are not strong. It's weak. It's weak because they don't see that they have Christian liberty in all things that are not clear in the Bible. Now, I'm stepping on some toes here. I know that this morning. But I think the Apostle Paul does that for us pretty well. And the weaker are those who, don't, who think that we must keep some aspects of formality or preference or practice in order to be more acceptable to God. And Paul says that's a weak way of looking at things. But don't despise the weak. Maybe you're on the other side of things. Maybe you grew up in a background like that that was really, really strict. And maybe you said, I don't want anything to do with that. You know, these people who say I have to look a certain way, dress a certain way, or that I can't dance, or I can't do this other thing, or I can't whatever. And you think, I don't want anything to do with that because that's just legalism. And so I really hate those people, and I hate anything to do with that. That's what Paul's talking about, the attitude that despises our brother. And he says we're, we're not permitted to despise those who are weak. Because they're weak. He's not talking about passing judgment on things that are not clearly wrong. That are, he's talking about not passing judgment on things that are not clearly wrong. So what he's saying is that if something's wrong, of course we correct it. And he's talked about that earlier. But these are issues that are not clearly wrong. That are not clearly in the Bible. They're not clear sin. Things like immorality, slander, gossip, or other clear sins. But he's addressing things that are not essential here. You know, Augustine, he, he referenced this passage and, and he's, he, he gave some explanation here. He says, Paul says this so that when something might be done with either good or bad motives, we should leave the judgment to God. Do you do that? You know, when, when you are not sure whether somebody's motives are good or bad and you're like, that's not clearly sin, 
Do you leave the judgment to God? He goes on to say, and not presume to judge the heart of someone else. Boy, that cuts. I am so guilty in my own home and in my relationship with other people to be quick to judge and assume the motives of others. How about you? Do you judge? Do you assume motives? Augustine goes on to say, not presume to judge the heart of someone else, which we do not see. But when it comes to the things which obviously could not have been done with good and innocent intentions, it's not wrong if we pass judgment. We must pass judgment on things which are obviously wrong. But Paul here, he's not talking about obviously wrong things. He's talking about things like even things that Paul did not subscribe to. And yet at the same time, you see that whenever Paul was with Jews, he abstained when he was with Jews. And with Gentiles, he ate like the Gentiles. He ate pork when he was with Gentiles, and he didn't eat pork when he was with Jews. Why? Is that because Paul was wishy-washy? No, because it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And so he's, he's addressing things in areas where people are weak, and they have a weaker understanding of who they are in Christ and the freedom that it brings. And he's more concerned, though, with making sure the unity of the church is maintained. Christian, if, if you believe you have liberty that allows you to honor God with practices that other Christians abstain from, what do you do with that? Do you argue with them? Do you differ with them? Do you judge them? Do you look down on them? Maybe someone in this room, your brother and sister, they believe that it's only right to dress up on a Sunday morning. And you're like, that's just ridiculous. Do you despise them? Or maybe they have some practices where they think, you know what, um, I'm not going to do any work on a Sunday because that's, that's my Sabbath day. Do you, do you look down on them and say, you know, hey, you know what, you don't really understand that, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Or maybe there's a different practice or preference that you look down on. Maybe, maybe somebody here abstains from something like watching a movie and you think, that's just ridiculous. Movies don't defile me. And you look down on them because you think they're too strict. Or maybe, maybe they, they abstain from certain kind of music or they abstain from some other kind of practice. What do you do with that when you believe your Christian liberty allows you freedom there? How do you treat them? How do you look at them? How do you interact with them? Do you welcome them but not to quarrel over opinions? Do you accept them? You know, welcoming somebody, it's not just, it's not just saying, hi, good to meet you on a Sunday morning, Right? <laughs> Um, I'm grateful that we are a welcoming church, that, that we greet one another and we do it warmly, but that it doesn't stop there. Because welcoming is not just about saying hello to somebody, it's about inviting them into your heart. It's about, it's about letting them into your life and letting them into who you are, being vulnerable to them, but not for the reason of trying to correct them. It's not like the bait and switch, hey, I'm going to welcome you and welcome into our church once you become a member. I'm really looking forward to correcting a bunch of things in your life. Maybe I'm the only one who's ever had that perspective, that ungodly perspective. Welcoming somebody is granting access into your heart. You know, imagine for a moment if, we're talking about the weaker, if, if with my children who are weaker, I've got everything from a 16-year-old to a 4-year-old. I've got six kids. And so imagine my 4-year-old, she is weak in a lot of areas. She is, she's not strong in her alphabet. She's weak, Right? She's not even four. She turns four in a, next week. She's weak physically. She picks up a bag of bread sometimes, and she's like, oh, man, this is heavy, you know? She's weak. She's weak in other areas. She's got weak dancing skills, although she's pretty impressive for her age. I mean, I'm not, I'm not getting down on her, right? So <laughs> I heard some people are like, oh, he's being mean. And no, 
Um, she's got game for a three-year-old well beyond a lot of you here. But um, she does. But she's still weak in a lot of areas. Imagine if I started making fun of and mocking my children because of their weaknesses. And I was like, oh, can you believe how weak she is? She's awful. She's weak. She can't even lift like a, a sack of sugar. Well, I mean, of course, it weighs like a third of her weight. But, you know, if I mocked her for a weakness, I'd be a jerk. It'd be arrogant of me. It'd be proud of me. I hope he'd pull me aside and say, look, brother, that's not a way to treat your children. That's belittling. Don't you know you need to be patient with the weaknesses? One day they'll grow, but the weaknesses don't necessarily need to be corrected. Um, her inability to lift things does not need to be corrected. She just needs to grow, and she'll get there in a few years. You know, her weakness with the alphabet will, will grow, and we need to just keep giving her some, some more to do every day and redirecting her to what's right, and she'll we, we keep teaching her about who God is, and she's weak. She doesn't really understand the gospel fully, but she, she knows that the right answer is always Jesus, you know? Even if it's not really the right answer. You know, why'd you do what you did, Jesus? No, 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 no. No, no. Um, no, you, you did that because you're wanting something and you didn't get it. Now, Jesus is the answer, but, but not yet. So she's weak in her understanding, but imagine if I was to deride her or make fun of her or mock her for her weaknesses. That would be ridiculous, and I would hope you would say, man, you're being awful to her. Now, hopefully you do that privately, pull me aside. It's just as ridiculous for us to look at those who are weaker in the faith and say, how could you believe those things? Oh, you're weak and despise. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. That's why he uses that terminology. What's your attitude towards those who are weaker? You know, I've got a friend named Chris. He was born with childhood rheumatoid arthritis. Most of the joints in his body are not there anymore, and his bones have deteriorated so that um, he, he doesn't function very well, doesn't get around very well. He was uh, born with that as a baby, so he's, he is tall in stature, he is tall in faith, he is tall in maturity, but he is a little shorter than three foot tall. He's a fully grown, three foot, or not even three foot tall man, but he is the most generous, kind, loving guy he's a gifted poet he's an artist you know but as a result of his size and his disease he's weaker than i am in some things and and how ridiculous it would be for me to think because he's weaker than i am physically that he would be somehow lesser than me and yet that's what it's like it's just as ridiculous just as foolish for us to think because people are weaker in their faith that they are lesser than us Weakness is that, weakness. Let's not be condescending or despise those. But let's change our behavior. And when I, when I relate to Chris, I haven't seen him in many years, but when I would relate to him, when I go out with him, I would change my behavior. When we go for a walk, I wouldn't just walk like I normally did. That would be really unkind because we wouldn't be walking together very long. He, he could barely walk. He didn't have joints. And so he's slow. And so I would change my pace because I want to be with him. I want to have fellowship with them. We need to change our behavior, change our pace when we're relating to people who are weaker, not be condescending, but just say, look, they're in a different place. Let's, let's walk with them where they're at. Look in verse two, he says, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak eats only vegetables. That was because the Jews were trying not to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols, but they couldn't find it anywhere. There was no kosher meats. Claudius had, had kicked out all the Jews. They come back now under Nero, but at least to begin with, 
but yet there was no more any allowance for kosher foods. And so they were saying, you know what, we, don't, we can't find any kosher meat, so we're just not going to eat any meat at all. And they became vegetarians. It's not a slam on people who are vegetarians here, by the way. If you're a vegetarian, it does not mean you are weaker. He's talking about areas of conscience, that your conscience is more sensitive, and you believe that you have less freedoms in Christ. And by the way, if you're a meat eater, you're not stronger, okay? <laughs> Although I, I eat meat to the glory of God, by the way, so. <laughs> they were weak because their conscience was easily bound to not allow them to do things that are not clearly sin. You know, I'm, I'm sure I've got areas that I am weak in like that too. I am weak. There are certain kinds of shows or movies or TV that I cannot watch that are not clearly sinful, but my conscience will not let me watch them. I'm weak in those areas. I, I recognize that. I hope you bear with me. There are areas that I might be stronger, have more liberties than you, and I, I hope that we recognize that with you and that we're, we defer to one another, we accept one another. And what is the grounds for that? Look in verse 3. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For what? For God has welcomed him. We welcome each other. We accept each other because God has welcomed us, because God has accepted us. Why in the world we would accept anyone who is not like us? It's only possible because God has accepted us. And by the way, we are far less like God than you and I are, are like each other. The differences between us and God are just vast, infinite, eternal differences. Unimaginable differences between us and God. Yes, we're made in his image, but oh, there are so many ways. I am, I am not eternal. I am not infinite. I'm not all loving. I'm not all wise. I'm not all kind. I'm not all knowing. I, I could just go on. There are some communicable attributes, and I'm thankful for those, but the incommunicable attributes of God are great. And so the differences between us and God are huge, and yet... He accepts us in Christ. He welcomes us in Christ. So as we're looking at our fellow believer and we're thinking, you know what? They're very different than us. And you might think that they're weaker than you. Or you might think that you're stronger or vice versa. You might think somebody else is stronger. We're to accept each other because God accepts us. That's the basis for our acceptance. You know, one perspective despises or is condescending to those who are weak, thinking that people who are weak are hung up on minor things. And you can treat them with derision as just legalistic people. Then they're strong or tempted to be arrogant and think that we only we understand the freedom of the gospel. And so the church down the road that practices differently than us, or our brother and sister in Christ that practices differently than us in our church, we can think they don't get the gospel at all. And you know what? Maybe they, they don't understand their freedom in the gospel. But they're weak. Accept them. When we were weak, when we are weak is when God's strength is made evident in us. And Paul corrects both the weak and the strong. You know, somebody is a brother or sister in Christ by faith in Jesus Christ, not trusting their works, then we're to welcome them like God's welcomed us. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God's unaware of somebody else's weaknesses? Do you act like it? Do you think God's unaware of your weaknesses? Do you act like he's unaware of your weaknesses when you relate to other people? 
You know, the motivation if we're accepting other people is that we know that we are weak, God is strong, and yet we are accepted in him. And we have to keep a humble mindset. Let's not pass judgment on somebody God is welcomed by grace alone, through faith alone. The next motivation we see, look down your Bible in verse four, the next motivation for accepting one another and our differences is it's because we all belong to God. We must accept each other because we all belong to God. We all belong to God. We are someone else's property and the person here in the room sitting beside you belongs to God. They don't belong to you. You're not their Lord is what Paul is getting at. So don't act like it. Don't act like you're their, sal- you're their savior. Don't act like you are their salvation and you must show them all of their errors. Don't act like you belong. They belong to you. Realize we both belong to God. Look down at verse four. He says, who are you? By the way, that's, that's, not a, that's not a kind question. It's an accusational question. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And by the way, that servant there is a fellow household servant. It's not the word that can commonly be used as slave. It's, it's a fellow household servant. Who are you to pass judgment on a fellow household servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. What it's saying is, don't you trust that if God's their master, that God's going to be able to uphold them even though they're weak in areas or you're strong in areas? Don't you know that God is going to uphold them just like he's going to uphold you and they're going to stand before God and he's going to make them stand? Do you trust that? Do you trust other people's weaknesses, deficiencies, errors, different preferences? Do you say, you know what? Wherever those things are wrong, God's going to enable them to stand. You know, in this country, the reason why we have diplomatic immunity is because We recognize that in principle, we respect the other country and their right to discipline their own citizens. That we won't be responsible for enforcing our rule on their citizens. And if we find somebody's behavior goes against our laws in some egregious way, ideally we send them back or turn them over to the country's authority. And so in a similar way, you need to see that everyone here is a fellow citizen, but they report to their own country, their own king, their own savior. They report to our savior, the same savior we report to. And they stand or fall before God. And we need to turn them over to God and trust God to take care of them. And Paul says, you know what? If they're a brother and sister in Christ, ultimately they're going to stand. You don't have to be so worried about pointing out errors or things you think are errors that may not be on non-essentials. Look at verse 5. It says, one person esteems one day is better than another. While one esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced of his own mind. What is he talking about days here? Well, most likely he's talking about Sabbath observance. Um, Because freedom in Christ means that all days are holy before God. All days are holy before God. That was actually one of the things that, that Martin Luther wrote about. Was that we should esteem all days as holy before God. Not only one day. Now it's good to set aside one day of worship, but all days are holy before God. At the same time, everybody should be fully convinced in his own mind. It's not good to do something that you're not fully convinced you're allowed or able to do in God. You know, if you're uneasy, and we're going to see this next week, about drinking a glass of wine once a week like your brother or sister might, then don't do it. We need to make sure we develop biblical convictions about what goes in our body. And, and how we live and how we spend our days, which the general category includes a lot. 
includes what goes in our bodies, includes you know, what we listen to, what we watch, what we eat, what we drink, what we do with our bodies, how we glorify God in our body for the glory of God alone. We do that in honor of the Lord and the, for the glory of the Lord. In fact, he says, look down your Bible, it says now that both weak and the strong, look in verse six, says are giving thanks. And the fact that they're giving thanks is an indication of salvation we have because what was one of the evidences of a depraved mind he talked about in Romans 1 and 2 was the fact that they did not give thanks. They did not honor God as they were supposed to. But now it is evident that they love God because they're giving thanks to him and they're seeking to honor him. Do you give your brother or sister the benefit of the doubt that they're trying to honor God unless it's clearly that they're not? Do you give them the benefit of the doubt? See, you know what? I'm I'm just going to trust that they're trying to honor God here but I'm gonna be convinced in my own mind that here's the ways that God would have me honor him. Why? Because all of life is to be lived as worship to him. What we do with our our bodies, what we do with our calendar, because look down at verse seven. Look look in verse seven, if you will, please. It says, for none of us, whether you're weak or strong, none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. So let me ask you, who are you living for? Are you living for yourself, your own needs, your own gratifications, your own preferences, your own desires? Or are you living for the honor and glory of the Lord? That's what matters. Pay attention to yourself. You live, you be fully convinced that you're honoring God and that everything about your life and every area of life you're seeking to honor God, that there is no area of life that is untouched by the mandate to honor the Lord. You be fully convinced. But don't assume Don't assume and presume that your fellow believer is not honoring the Lord. And by the way, pay attention to yourself because all of us, we don't live to ourselves. None of us dies to himself, meaning Jesus is able to keep us in life and in death. We live for his glory. Whether we live or whether we die, he keeps us in life and he keeps us in death. Look in verse 8. He says, if we live, we live to the Lord. How are you living Paul says, stop worrying about the people around you. Stop looking at how the people around you are living so much. You are too tied up with how, you're, how, how everybody around you is living, whether they eat or drink or what they do or how they schedule their week or what that looks like. And he says, if we live, we live to the Lord. Are you living to the Lord? He says, if we die, we die to the Lord. Is your hope in death that you're dying to the Lord? He says, so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That is our security. You can be secure that not only you, but the person you have differences with, they're the Lord's. They belong to him. He's going to take care of them. That's why you can kind of chill out and say, you know what? I don't have to worry about every little thing or where we differ because, you know what? They're God's and he's going to take care of them just like he takes care of my weaknesses. And the reason why I don't have to worry about every area I slip up or have sin is because I'm confident in Christ because I realize, you know what? I'm the Lord's. So I don't have to worry over much about Every little thing, am I, am I sitting right now? Am I not sitting right now? Am I sitting right now? Am I not sitting right now? You know what? I'm just going to try to honor the Lord and trust that I'm his and he's going to take care of my junk and he's going to make that evident. Is that the way you're living? You need to ask yourself, am I, am I motivated by fear of doing something wrong or by faith that I want to honor God? You know, for those who are weak, you know, ask, am I confident in my justification? Am I confident in my righteousness in Christ alone? And, and am I aware that his work is finished and there's no requirements that remain and challenge you to, to think that way? 
You know, at the same time, remember that if you're strong, it's not a license to live however you want around people who might be offended by you, but have an attitude of deference and accepting and an honor because they belong to God. If if you truly thought of somebody beside you and around you or in your small group, you thought, you know what, they belong to God, I'm, I'm going to be careful how I relate to God's servant because they belong to God. They're holy. They belong to God. I need to be careful how I relate to them. Living to the Lord, it means not living for what other people think about you. We belong to the Lord. We can be confident that he's going to keep us whether in life or in death. We can be free from living for other people and free to live for Jesus. That's what he wants for us. That's what God desires for us. And look down at in verse 9. He says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. What's he saying? He's saying the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection was so that he might rescue us, so that he might be Lord over us while we're living and Lord over us when we die. We're secure in him. And so we can kind of rest in the fact that not only are we secure in him, but so is our fellow believer. Now finally, briefly, we're gonna see this third motivation for accepting one another in our differences. Look down in verse 10. It's really, we, we must accept each other because we all will be judged by God. There is a holy fear that the Apostle Paul intends for us as a church. There's a holy acceptance because we've been accepted by God. There's a holy view of our fellow believer because they belong to Jesus. They're honorable. They're an ambassador sent by Christ just as we are. So we need to honor them as an ambassador because they represent him. So we need to be careful how we relate to them. But then thirdly, because we all will be judged by God. We, we can trust them and their differences. That God will judge. He's, he's going to make it all clear. But you know what? We have to also know that God's going to judge us. So let's be careful that we're not relating proudly with each other. Look in verse 10, it says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You know, there is uh, an old story of Charles Spurgeon and a guy named Joseph Parker. They were both ministers in the late 1800s in London, England. And infamously, they would have these differences once in a while, although they were friends. The newspaper reporters would be in their church on Sunday recording what they said, and sometimes they would say something that referenced the other church, and that would be taken out of context. And so they got into these, this public spat. It wasn't good. And one of the times, Spurgeon made some offhand comment, and a reporter overheard it. I don't know if it was in church or where it was, but about Joseph Parker, his fellow pastor just across town. And he said that he questioned how spiritual Joseph Parker must really be because he goes to the theater. So the ironic thing there is that Spurgeon really was very fond of cigars. Joseph Parker felt like to smoke cigars was was sin. So Spurgeon was confronted about this and he says, it's not a problem. I don't smoke in excess. And so the person said, well, what's your definition of excess? And he kind of grinned. He says, well, no more than two at a time. (laughs) 
But, but who was right? Was Parker right? Was Spurgeon right? None? Both? Probably a mixture of both? Who knows? The Bible doesn't speak clearly to those things. You know what? Ultimately, it's not our business because you know what? God's the judge. He'll take care of that. We can trust God with differences that are not clearly sin. There's many clear areas of sin in the Bible outlines, and we need to love each other enough to to lovingly stop each other from continuing to sin. But where the Bible's not clear, let's pause and say, you know what? I'm going to accept the fact that Jesus is my Lord. He's their Lord. He's able to make them stand. He's accepted me. He accepts them, not on the basis of their merit, not on the basis of their convictions, but he accepts them by grace alone, through faith alone. So let me not reject them because of what they do. And let me also remember that God's going to judge me for how I treat them just as strictly as how they behave. And let's not forget that. We're all secure in Jesus in the same way. He's the Lord of both the weak and the strong. We're all equally accountable. We're all, and and get this, this is a picture really of all being present around the throne room of God together, standing together in the throne room of God, before the the judgment seat of God. That should bring some humility to us. That brother or sister you have so many differences with, you will stand arm in arm with around the throne. And those differences won't be why you're there. Your strength or your weakness will not be why you're there. They will not prohibit you from being there. And they they won't secure you more in God's throne. You're secure because Jesus died and rose again to bring you to himself. There's a bigot's creed that we don't subscribe to, but many do. It's believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink but what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do. Then and only then will I fellowship with you. Into our shame, often we act like that. We want people to believe exactly like we do. We're even a little bit bummed out when somebody in our small group likes a different musical band than us, and we're like, yeah, I don't know if they're really cool anymore. They may not be, but who cares? We're all secure in Jesus. Our fellowship has nothing to do with preferences. Nothing. It has everything to do with the fact that Jesus died and rose again to make us his own. So that when we stand before him in the throne, he will not condemn us. And he won't condemn your fellow believer here either. Look in verse 11. It says, For as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. All of us will bow to Jesus in the same way, on the same basis. All of us have the same confession before God that our hope, our faith is in him alone and in nothing else. And look at verse 12. It says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Do you know that you are not going to give an account for your spouse? Now, as a husband, you have some responsibility in how you related to your, and led your wife get that. You have responsibility in how you relate to other people, but you know, when we come before God, we give an account of ourselves. That should be sobering. Let's remember that. You know what? 
I don't have to correct this person because you know what? They're going to give an account of God to them, of themselves to God, and I'm going to give an account of myself to God. I need to be more concerned. What's that saying? Be more concerned with yourself than other people here in the room. Be more concerned with where you're weak, where you have differences, where you have issues, than when somebody else's issues. Unless it's clearly sin, we need to be more aware of the fact that, you know what, in every area of my life, I'm going to give an account to God. And let me have a holy awareness of that as I relate to my fellow believer. Because we share the same confession, we share the same Lord, we share the same hope, we stand the same way. He's going to enable us to stand. So church, let's not give ourselves up to subversive tactics of the enemy. Let's not undermine the unity of the church and hurt our gospel witness. Let's be on guard against the guerrilla tactics that the devil uses to try to divide us. Ask yourself this morning, am, am I, how have I been in relation to my fellow believers? Am I, am I aware of differences in preference and practice? Do those things bother me? Or style? In the church, am I aware of differences in, my, in the style of worship that annoy me or, or preaching or whatever it is? Maybe you like the way that Aaron preaches better, like the way I preach better, or like the way that John MacArthur does or John Piper, whoever. Or maybe there's other preferences. You don't, you know, maybe you prefer Philip or maybe you prefer Joe or maybe you prefer when so-and-so plays drums or whatever it might be or when nobody does or when Willie plays the djembe or whatever. What are you more aware of? When you go to somebody's house, are you more aware of those differences? Let's strive to be on guard against those guerrilla warfare tactics that try to divide us. There was another reformer named Rupertus Meldinius. He says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again to make us his own. And that's our hope. That one day, you know what? We stand before him. We don't have to fear judgment in the sense of condemnation. But we can know that all of us, as we're fellow believers in Christ, we're going to stand secure in him. And every, every work of ours will be revealed. But you know what will, the effect of that will be? And, and as a believer, you're thinking, wait a minute. Will, will really every thought and intention of our heart be revealed? Yes, it will. Even as believers, every thought and intention of the heart will be revealed. But you know what and Why? It's so that every thought and intention can result in praise and glory to God because it will be an instance where we've been forgiven by God's grace and all of those things will be placed on God, on Jesus, and said, we say, it's because of the blood of the Lamb that every thought and deed and intention has been put on Him and so I worship Him. And so His grace becomes magnified. And so let's magnify His grace here and now and how we relate to each other. Amen? Well, let's pray, and uh, Joe, if you'll go ahead and come up, and then we'll close in a song in a moment.